welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Hi, I'm Michael Ewald, host of Credit Hour. Several weeks ago, we had the opportunity to speak with USD alum and South Dakota Governor Dennis Dugard. In a discussion about his life and career, we touched on a variety of subjects, including what it was like to attend a one-room country schoolhouse, his experience driving a bus in downtown Chicago during law school, his proudest and most challenging days as governor, and even some of the advice he'll offer the next person who serves as governor. I really enjoyed this episode and hope you do as well. Governor Dugard, thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you. You know, I'm curious, what is your favorite memory from childhood? Everyone, you know, thinks about politicians when they're adults, but I'm curious what you were like, you know, as a young person. Well, um, I grew up on a a family farm near Del Rapids, between Del Rapids and Gerritsen. And my two sisters and I, when we were growing up, we had uh, a typical diverse family farm. We had corn and oats and hay and raised chickens and hogs and had cattle. And later in my grade school years, we switched to dairy farming and milk cows. But probably the most uh, memorable thing about childhood was going to the country school. They still had a one-room country school back in those days. And I was the only kid in my class, or I was at the top of my class, I like to say. But uh, the number of kids in grades one through eight probably ranged from 15 to 20, 25, depending upon kids moving in or out or graduating and the size of the classes. But uh, more than once when we'd have a snowfall that packed the roads with snow, one of our neighbors, Gib Kringen, would hook up a horse to an old end gate cedar that he had taken the wheels off and instead put on heavy sled runners. And then he'd drive that horse to our house, pick up my two sisters and me. He'd drive to the Wynots, pick up the Wynot kids, drive past his own home and pick up his own kids. And then we'd go to the country school in a horse-drawn sled. And then we'd take turns, us kids. We had these five buckle overshoes that we'd wear in the wintertime and we'd hang on the back of the sled <laughs> and ski with our, our big overshoes. <laughs> and it was the most fun. <laughs> that was a little bit different than the sort of story that you hear about children maybe telling that they had to walk up to you know school uphill both ways in the snow. You, you <laughs> yeah. were sledding up, uphill. I was sledding uphill. What were you like, maybe as a student, you, you kind of jokingly said you were the top of your class. Were you always sort of a studious you know, person? Did you always care about education, or did that maybe come later in life? Uh, in grade school, I was, I was pretty uh, diligent as a student. I loved to read. Uh, I always did well on the um, Iowa basic tests, which is uh, now uh, gone by, but the kind of standardized testing they'd give students every so often. And I enjoyed school and got good grades and and was really, I think I was a pretty good student. Uh, When I got to high school, I was a little bit more social and less studious, but I still got good grades. You know, I have to ask, I'm a little bit curious. You always hear about the, you know, one-room schoolhouse. How did that actually work? I mean, how how did teachers function you know, trying to teach different kind of grade levels and subject matters, you know, obviously to to different age levels of kids. Well, at that time, there was no kindergarten. So it's grades one through eight. And what the teachers would do, or at least in our school, what they did while we had three different teachers during my seven years, the the country school closed at the end of my seventh grade and was consolidated into the Del Rapids district. But they would pair up the grades. So first and second graders were taught as a grade third and fourth graders were taught as a grade. And so when it came to reading or arithmetic or social studies, we were taught the same material. And so you might, as a first grader, see that same material again as a second grader. You'd be a little bit more accomplished, and maybe the teacher would give you a little bit different homework, and homework in the sense of they'd call the first and second graders to the front of the room and spend 15 minutes with the teacher talking to the first and second graders. Meanwhile, the third through eighth grade would be at their desks doing some other work and uh, leaving the, the 
teacher and the others alone. Then when the first and second graders were done, then she'd call up the third and fourth graders and do and interact with them. While again, the rest of the students would be back at their desks doing some sort of workbook or some sort of self-driven material. I mean, it must have been a real community these schools then, right? I mean, everybody must have known everybody, probably were neighbors to a certain extent. Right. I mean, do you think that, you know, public schools now have that same sense of community? Is that, do you think that's something that's been lost? Well, I don't know. It's it's certainly a very small cloistered environment. Those small country schools that, again, when you've only got maybe 20 kids total in the classroom and you're in that classroom all day long and you have older kids that in some ways mentor the little kids and are bossing the little kids <laughs> a little bit. Uh, it's almost like a family where you have big sisters and brothers in the room with you. And, and unlike you know elementary school or grade school where you're clustered with kids of your same age, and you might see the other kids in the hallway in, in the country school, you're with those kids all the time. You're at recess with them. You have lunch with them. A lunch you'd bring in a lunch pail or lunch bucket. Uh, the the uh, local families would take turns bringing a hot meal at lunchtime. Um, I'm trying to think what else they did. But yeah, we did know everybody and all the neighbors knew one another because we were all within about three miles of the school. Now, you were a child of, of deaf parents. What what did that add you know, to your childhood? Well, uh, I think somebody asked me the other day when I first realized that, oh, our family is a little bit different. And I can't even remember when that dawned on me. Uh, I think as a child of deaf parents, uh, my two sisters had normal hearing. And uh, I think because we could hear and uh, my parents took pains to expose us to audio. So they had radios in the house, even though they were no use to them. They had the television mm -hmm. volume. We, we would adjust it so we could listen. Huh. Um, and um, then when we had adults that would come, you know, whether it's the Fuller brush man that's coming to sell something or the life insurance salesman <laughs> or the farm uh, service agency guy coming to deal with a corn loan or something, we as kids would be the interpreter. And so I think we were forced as children to interact with adults a lot earlier than other kids might have to. Right. Um, well, you know, that's interesting. I mean, do you think that made you a better communicator? I think it did. Yeah, I think it may have. I don't know that. I know my two sisters are very accomplished. Um, they were at the top of their class and, uh, you know, very successful in their careers. I became a politician. So two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> right, right. Right. Well, you would eventually come to the University of South Dakota to get your bachelor's degree. Um, what, I guess, drew you to Vermilion? Well, my sister was here. Okay. She came here and uh, I was looking at SDSU or USD and then Joyce, my older sister, she's two years older. So she'd been, she was a sophomore when I was looking and she really wanted me to come down to USD. <laughs> and so I, I wanted to because she was here too. And so I came down and toured around a little bit. She, she had a friend of hers tour me around. She introduced me, or her friend introduced me to uh, Doc Farber. Okay. And uh, he promised me a scholarship if I would uh, come to USD and major in government. And up until that time, I had no idea where I would go and what I would major in, but that's what decided it. I needed money. <laughs> and so I said, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> well, and you know, you would eventually attend law school at Northwestern University in, in Chicago, Evanston. Um, one of the most prestigious law schools in the country. And you would practice law a couple of years in Chicago, but you would eventually come back to South Dakota. When we talk about our own workforce challenges, right? I think that, you know, that that's a topic that's probably of quite a lot of discussion for you, sure. um, you know, on a regular basis. And you've dealt personally with it, you know, the decision to come back when you probably had opportunities to stay in Chicago, move elsewhere, New York, LA, wherever you wanted to go. What made you come home? Well, uh when I moved to Chicago, it was a great cultural experience for me because I didn't, I wasn't well traveled and Vermilion is a small town too. And so going to a large metropolitan area like that was just a tremendous experience. That was 
part of the attraction. Again, I'll, I'll give credit to Dr. Farber. He's the one. He was himself a Northwestern grad, you might know. And he encouraged me to apply there, and I got in. And so moving to Chicago, it's a great experience. I was young and unmarried and uh, learned a lot and really enjoyed living in a big city like that and the different environment. But it really was a city, as all cities are, of extremes. You have extreme wealth, extreme poverty. I'd never really seen a homeless person before. I hadn't seen, uh, you know, the extremes of behaviors and uh, kind of a class society you see there. And... uh, it was quite segregated. You know, there are some parts of Chicago that are still pretty segregated. And uh, those things I didn't like. I, did, I didn't like that about. And I've told this many times to people who ask me about this. Uh, people don't look you in the eye on the street. And people still do that in South Dakota. You look at people on the street because you think, maybe I'll know someone I'm going to see. And oftentimes you do. You'll meet someone you know in South Dakota, very often, no matter whether you're in Sioux Falls or Rapid or, or any of the larger cities. But in Chicago, you don't. And so people don't look at you, and they don't say hello, they don't smile. Uh, you can't see the stars at night because of all the lights. Uh, there's just lots of traffic and a lot of people and a lot of congestion. And after a while, I miss the wide open spaces and I miss the friendly faces. And the culminating uh, event, though, was um, I had uh, dated uh, a girl that I met in eighth grade when I you know, came to town school. <laughs> she was from Del Rapids, Linda, and we dated through high school. And then we went our separate ways and dated other people. But we'd gotten back together and uh, we had decided we were going to get married. And we wanted to get married in South Dakota and raise our family here. So, so, so Linda was the recruiter, I guess. Linda, well, we it was a mutual decision. It was a mutual decision. Uh, I was, I wanted to move back, and and she she wanted to move back too. In a different world where maybe you had stayed in Chicago, what were you, what were you, would you have been attracted to? Do you think you would have pursued public service, or was that very much tie, tied to you know your journey here in South Dakota? That was much more a happenstance of being back in South Dakota, and it really wasn't a deliberate thing at all. It was just the way it evolved here. I don't know what I would have done in Chicago, but I did enjoy the dynamic quality, the the scale of buildings. I, I love the different architecture uh, and the history of Chicago. Um, you know, the, the lake was really spectacular. The When I was in law school, one of my classmates convinced me to join the sailing club at Northwestern, and we <laughs> And they taught us how to sail. And they had these little three-person sailboats that we would take out on Lake Michigan, which is a pretty good-sized body of water. And, and it was a thrill. They were, they were relatively small boats on, on a comparatively big water and a lot of fun. But, so I loved that kind of thing. But when I got back to South Dakota, I felt at home. You know, I'll ask one more Chicago-related question. And... Any professor who's probably listening to this podcast is going to cringe when I go with my source here. But I read on Wikipedia that you were you drove a bus in the loop. I did. It, this is a true story. It's, this it, is a so true I have to story. ask, is that letting the hardest job you have ever had? I mean, I can't even imagine driving a large vehicle downtown there. It well, wasn't. Uh, it was a great job, actually. And I would have never gotten the job except one of my law school classmates. And this was the summer after our first year. As we were leading up to it, he learned that the the state or maybe the transit authority had gotten a federal grant and they had to spend it on either teachers or students for summer employment. And of course, among students, people of our age were older students and more attractive as potential drivers than, say, a 20-year-old or so... uh, if we were 22 or 23, uh, that's a little bit more mature. And so we went and applied, and we both got jobs. And uh, they gave me two weeks of training so I could get a commercial <laughs> bus driver's license. So I had a CDL, and they trained you, you know, driving through cones and on parking lots. And, and uh, then you were assigned to a station. I was assigned to the Northwest Station. I would show up at 2 o'clock in the afternoon every day. And then by four o'clock, I would be assigned one of the routes 
and I wouldn't know which route it was. <laughs> Usually, I'd find out oftentimes that day, and it'd be, well, Michael Jones is gone uh, on vacation this week, so you've got the Addison route. So I'd go uh, to the Addison terminal and then drive up and down Addison from about 4 o'clock until midnight. Or if I got uh, some of the express bus routes, it would literally be you start at 4 o'clock, drive into the loop, fill your bus, and then you drive straight to one of the outer perimeters of the city and then start dropping people off. But it was really a very variety-filled jobs because you'd be in all these different parts of the city and learn the street names and learn what all those parts look like because I'd be driving in them. Yeah, I, I mean, the amount of... Like I said, the if you've never been to Chicago, it's actually a pretty well-designed city, but still just the, the traffic and trying to drive a big bus would be so difficult. All, you know, Chicago in the, in the 70s, I guess, was you know, fairly tumultuous. How much of that did you pay attention to when you were in law school? Oh, I paid attention to it. I was very interested in it. Uh, I, you know, I was wary of going to the south side, wary of going to the west side. I stayed pretty much on the near north side or the northwest or the north north shore, um, except when I drove bus. Sometimes I'd have to drive onto the into the south side or into the west side. And parts of those are very nice and good, and other parts are were at that time and maybe still are uh, pretty poverty riddled and a little bit dangerous. And um, that was interesting. I did also have uh, one thing that. I enjoyed doing in Chicago. While I was there, there was a developer that was developing a stretch of property that ran from uh, ran in the south part of the Loop area, South Dearborn Street, to the what they called the old Dearborn Street Station, which was an abandoned railroad terminal. And the Catholic Church bought the terminal and the bare property behind it, which is old abandoned railroad yard, and they turned it into printing house row they called it and then the stretch from dearborn street north or yeah north of there for about three four blocks had been largely abandoned there was a building for example the transportation building a 27-story building that was vacant the whole building was vacant 27 stories high and up and down that street it was it was sort of a uh, neglected, dilapidated part of town, and developers bought it, and they started converting each of those buildings to lofts. So I, I bought a lease with an option to buy in one of those buildings, and I quit my job, and I sandblasted the brick walls, I sanded the floors, I, you know, got a plumbing guy to help pull a plumbing permit. He did some of it, but he let me do some of the plumbing myself, and uh, then I ended up moving into that renting it for a while and then when they converted to condominium I bought it and then lived in it for about a year and then and that's when I moved back home but you know we talked a second ago about how you kind of got into public service and you said it was it was happenstance you know you've been a state legislator lieutenant governor and obviously now you're the governor uh, like I said what, what kind of drew you to this career yeah well uh, I was working at Children's Home Society and I came home one night on a weeknight, and the phone rang, and it was a friend who, uh, in fact, a USD grad, Bill Peterson, and another guy, um, oh, I'm drawing the blank on his name, they were going through uh, voter lists, and they were trying to recruit candidates for the legislature. And they said, hey, we came across your name in this district, which was District 9 at the time, and we're looking for candidates to run for the legislature. Have you ever thought about it? And I said, well, no, I hadn't. And I said, uh, but that's kind of interesting. Do you think I would have a chance? Yes, we think you'd have a chance. So then I talked to Linda about it, and I looked at my calendar. And I said, you know, I'm going to be working out at Black Hills Children's Home in the Rapid City area for most of the fall, and I really couldn't campaign. I, but how about two years from now? Well, I don't know. We'll see. We might not need candidates, you know. <laughs> but two years later, they still were trying to recruit candidates for that district. So I did run and was elected. And, and so then I ended up serving as a state legislator for six years, two or three two-year terms. During that time, 
I was also uh, working as the head of the Children's Home Foundation at the time and the director of the uh, operating organization, Children's Home Society, was getting set to retire. And he said, Dennis, I want to recommend you to the board of directors that you be named the new executive director. Are you interested? And I said, yes, I am. So I'd interviewed with them, and they had offered me the job that was to begin in um, 2002. Is that right? 2003. Excuse me, 2003. And so, so I had about a year's lead time for that. And because of it, they said, now, because you're going to be taking on this new job, we don't want you to take a leave of absence every winter and go to legislature anymore. So we want you to quit <laughs> the legislature. Right. So I quit the legislature. I, I did not file for re-election that, that in the 2002 year. And uh, in fact, I told the other people in my district who were in the House, hey, if you want to run for the Senate, I'm out now. It's an open seat. And then uh, Mike Rounds won the uh, nomination for the Republican uh, uh, in the Republican primary and out of the blue asked me to be his running mate. And we had no pre-conversation about that. Uh, it was absolutely out of the blue. And... Um, I had about a week to decide because, of course, the Republican convention was coming up and he wanted to know. And so I, I called up the executive director. He said, gee, I, I promised the board members that I wouldn't run for the legislature again. But, you know, I think the lieutenant governor is not at all a partisan role. You don't debate. You don't sponsor bills. I think it's less partisan. And I still would just preside. It's more of a administrator and certainly you vote once in a while but even then it's not a partisan issue because if you've got a tie then you've got you've got to have unless you've got a perfectly divided senate which we don't in south dakota typically it's going to be a bipartisan disagreement so uh he said you should just take his off offer to be the running mate and and run and so and i also called denny sanford because he had also recently made a big financial commitment to Children's Home, and part of the commitment was, you've got to stay there with Children's Home. And uh, so I said, hey, I, I just wanted you to know, if you hear that I'm the running mate, it doesn't mean I'm leaving Children's Home. I'm going to stay at Children's Home. I'm going to be a part-time lieutenant governor, as Carol, Hill Carol Hillard was, as Steve Kirby was, and I'll still work at Children's Home. So everybody was supportive, so I ran, and and then it really was the only self-driven decision to be governor. That was the one where I was deliberate and forethought given to it and planning and, and then running. What inspired you, I guess, for that? Was it a particular vision? Did you just feel like you were the person for the moment? Yeah, I think a little bit of that. I think I, I thought, well, I... I believe uh, my motivations were good. Uh, it would not be uh, an increase in salary. In fact, I took a pay cut. I'm still not earning as governor what I was earning at Children's Home when I left uh, here. Now it is nearly eight years later. So it wasn't monetary. I, I just thought, well, I, I could do a good job. I'm not an attention seeker, so I'm not in it for the drama. I'm not in it to climb on to national roles, but I thought, well, I can, I can probably get the budget straight because I did that at Children's Home and other issues that would come along. I think I could be a good consensus builder and, and get some action through the legislature. So, uh, so I ran and my wife and kids were really supportive. And so I ran. What's been your, I guess, best day as governor and what has been maybe the most difficult? Hmm. Gosh, good question. Uh, some of the best days, like, I don't know that I can pick one. Some of the best days would be when uh, the Missouri River flood uh, was seemingly beat back and the water was going to start being reduced and the levees had held. Uh, I can remember a day when I got a call from our CFO that we were going to be awarded AAA financial status. 
And I knew that would be the first of three dominoes that would fall when each of the three credit rating agencies would would give us AAA rating, which, which happened. So that was a good day. Um, some other contentious and difficult legislative accomplishments, raising taxes to improve teacher pay, though that was a very close vote. In fact, we lost the first vote in one of the chambers and had to get it reconsidered and persuade someone to change their vote, and we were able to do that, and that felt good when, when the vote did pass. And the same was true with the road funding. Um, we, we didn't know if we'd ever get a, um, a conference committee to agree on a solution there and get our road funding bill to pass, and we got that passed. So those are two major things, and you know, you don't like to raise taxes. I don't like to raise taxes, but in both those situations, there's no way we could improve the situation without doing that. And I think the voters understood that and accepted that. And in the end, I think have been supportive of it. You know, have, has the responsibilities, people talk about executive positions, right? And they kind of change the way maybe you think about um, issues. You know, has there anything about being lieutenant governor, governor, that has maybe changed your thought process or how you've perceived certain issues? Uh, I think I have a better appreciation, excuse me, a better appreciation of the breadth of some of those jobs, especially governor. You know, lieutenant governor can be and is whatever the governor delegates to that job in South Dakota. Excuse me. And in South Dakota, when, as I said, I was going to, as I became lieutenant governor, I was about to have uh, a new job at Children's Home. And so I said to Mike Rounds, I want to be your running mate, but it has to be part-time because I want to keep my commitment to children's homes. So that, that was relatively narrow uh, by, by request. But uh, the governor job, I just didn't fully appreciate how, how broad the variety of issues are, how broad it, those variety of issues can be, and how rapid fire you have to grapple with different things. And so I more fully appreciate the importance of having a team that is surrounding you that that you trust and who are highly capable and intelligent, understand uh, and share the values that I have and help um, take initiative and then check with me. You know, is this what you want to do? Here's the op- here's the decision point. I think we should do this. What do you think, Governor? Yes, let's go that way. Um, I've got a great cabinet and a great staff. And I think as I look around the nation, I've been particularly lucky in terms of the persistence of some of that staff. I think, for example, the chief of staff position, the average length of stay is about a year and a half. And I've had two, both uh, serving four years. So that's pretty good. And I've got a number of staff even here in the room, as we're having this podcast, who've been with me the whole time I've been governor. And that's an unusual thing because many people use that job as an opportunity to move on to better things. And a lot of people have just been very loyal and, and great public servants. You know, you t- you talked a second ago about not necessarily being an attention-seeking, you know, kind of politician. That's not necessarily your persona. You're more mild-mannered. But you have never been afraid, I think, to tackle obviously really difficult and tough legislative issues, whether it's the budget, um, teacher pay, transportation. You you know, you probably get a a question about this a lot, so it might be ad nauseum at this point. But, you know, there was a poll that was put out there that says that, you know, you are one of the most popular, if not the most popular governor, you know, in the United States. And I think that there is something interesting about that, (laughs) right, about sort of your style, but also then, you know, that the issues you take on are of grave importance. You've never been afraid to do it. what do you think that says about your administration that generally it has been very popular? You've been w- very well received with some of the tough decisions that you've had to make. What does that maybe say about South Dakota? I, I think it probably just says that pulling organization just pulls the people I tell them to pull. <laughs> so I think that's very helpful in the outcome. <laughs> no, I think it, uh, I think it shows that South Dakotans uh, like uh, people who put their head down and just do the work and aren't all that worried about 
getting on television or getting the headline. And also they appreciate, even if they disagree with me, that they, I, I hope they believe I'm being honest about what I believe and I'm not saying one thing and saying it's for this reason when really it's for that reason. And I think even, you know, you look at other governors and other uh, elected leaders, if you see someone with whom you disagree, but you think they're being honest about it and making decisions based on their values, honestly held, you respect that, even if you disagree with it. And, and I think that maybe is an aspect of why uh, those uh, polls show that. I don't know. You've got still half a year left in office, so it's you still need to kind of run the car right, right. for a while yet. But are there any, you know priorities or, or issues that, you know, you maybe just aren't going to get to, um, that, that there's just not going to be time. Are there, are, is there unfinished business that if you had had a third oh, yeah. term, maybe you would have really focused on? Well, yeah, there's, there's definitely challenges that we face as a state. Meth, methamphetamine use is, is a tremendous problem. And, uh, uh, we've tried to address that to some degree with, uh, prevention, or not prevention so much as treatment options. I think we've pivoted from a lock up the user to uh, treat the user or give them at least a chance at treating, at treatment before lockup. I think the manufacturer and distributor should go straight to lockup in my mind because they're, they're at the root of the problem. But if you're a user and you've become addicted, it might be because you made a couple bad choices and now you're chemically tied. And recognizing that, we want to try and not just lock people up because you don't solve the problem then. As soon as they get out, they go back to the same friends and they use again, even if, even if they're uh, you know, physically um, gone cold turkey. Uh, but but the the area where I don't think I've made good progress, and I'm hoping the next governor can find a solution, and that's prevention. Help people make the choice to say no, and maybe that's maybe it's a marketing campaign that we need with our young people or with young adults and students to to realize how threatening it can be to them and how easily addicted they can become, and how bad it is if you are and. So I'm hopeful there. The other, another area where I think there's work to be done is uh, water. I think um, I didn't fully appreciate how our surface waters are polluted. I think our rivers, uh, many of our rivers are uh, impaired. They're EPA listed impaired. And uh, as much as I'd like to say they're getting better, they're not getting better. And whether it's a river or uh, a lake, We've got to do something about that. And it's not point pollution, it's non-point pollution. It's runoff from our fields. And I'm, I'm hoping you know, the next governor can find a way uh, to address that. You know, that's interesting. I, I think that you know, the beauty of South Dakota is sort of the rural heritage, right? And not always, but sometimes there's a conflict with that when it comes to economic development and just moving forward in general. You know, one of the things about your administration was um, Good Earth State Park near Sioux Falls. That was a huge accomplishment. Why is it important to preserve some of this natural resources that are around South Dakota for future generations? Well, that's one of the benefits of growing up in South Dakota is because now I've got 60, nearly 65 years of watching the landscape. And I remember when I was growing up on the farm, uh, the scale of farming was so much smaller. The fields were smaller in size and the nature of the field size and the equipment was such that there were areas of the farm you just couldn't farm because it'd just be too wet and uh, in, except in very dry years. But in most years, uh, there were areas where we still had frogs. We still had, uh, uh, cattails we had uh, there were just within a mile there was a place where the neighbor kid and I would go and catch frogs and we'd catch 20 frogs and I can remember putting them in his mother's bathtub <laughs> and she came home and she said Steve what are you doing and we just thought it was great that we'd caught all these frogs 
But uh, those frogs aren't there anymore. And those uh, wetlands have been drained, and now they're grassways at, at best, or they're tiled and they're tilled. And so I've seen that landscape change in, in our tilled agriculture areas. And those areas that can be salvaged back to that and where that makes sense, I think we're going to see that occur. With precision farming now, farmers are going to see what parts of the field they can till now, but make no sense to till now because even though they can plant there, it's still too wet or too salty or too this or too that to make a profit on that acre or these two acres. And so they'll leave them, hopefully. The other thing I think I'm hopeful that modern ag will continue to evolve toward is no-till farming. And you see that in the West where ag is expanding, but it's only able to expand because of no-till farming. And with no-till farming, you've still got all the microbial action. You've still got the ability of the land to absorb a rainfall rather than, I think most people, as I believed, thought that if you till a, a, an area of soil, make it all fluffy and 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 loose, that when it rains, that water will just be absorbed. Quite the contrary. Very quickly, a clay layer uh, absorbs and swells on the surface, and the water runs off. And so you might go down an inch, and, the, and it's dry. And I've seen rainfall um, demonstrations that prove that very uh, visibly and sensibly. So anyway, whether it's uh, precision ag that helps ag producers see that there's areas they should leave to a more natural, un untilled nature, or whether it's no-till, which will allow tillage, but such minimal tillage that the land still has the ability to absorb a lot of water and prevent the kind of runoff that pollutes our water. All that being said, places like Gooder State Park that have not changed and don't need salvaging but preserving, I know, especially in eastern South Dakota, we just don't have the access to the state parks like you do in West when you've got the Black Hills National Forest and Custer State Park and such a mass of recreational uh, forest land. You just don't have that here. It's part of part of what I like about South Dakota is the wide open spaces, but you still like to have those park-like areas where you're in the trees and on the river and enjoying nature of a different kind. You know, you talked about the breadth of the challenge of being governor. Is there a, you know, program or department that maybe doesn't get a lot of public attention, but that, you know, you have found to be critically important to the operation of state government or maybe just you know, the magnitude of the work that they're doing, the accomplishments that, that they are, you, you know, able to make? Uh, I think the Department of Tribal Relations is doing a lot and not many people see it and not many people know it. I think our relationships with the tribes are tremendously improved from when I first started. It's not mostly due to what I've done. I think I've contributed, but I think our leaders of our tribal relations department have done a very good job. And as our cabinet secretaries, um, Secretary Hepler with Game, Fish, and Parks, he's going to the tribes and working with their tribal uh, parks and wildlife uh, leaders. Our Department of Ag is going and working with tribal leaders and ag. Our housing is working with tribal housing people. So I think our, our tribal leaders are much more uh, engaged with the state, and the state is more engaged with the tribes than ever before. And so that's an area I feel good about. It doesn't get a lot of publicity. You know, obviously, there's a pretty intense primary battle going on right now with the Republican nomination. You know, there'll be Democrats, other candidates, you know, regardless of who ends up taking over your office. You know, will you write them a letter? Will there be a, a piece of advice that you give them? Have you thought about that yet? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm already writing. I'm already writing. In fact, I've got in my briefcase in the car some notes I made just recently that I've got to add to my document on my on my desktop, I've got a document that I keep adding to. I've got to remember to tell the next governor this, tell the next governor that. So there's not one singular piece of advice, really? No, it's really uh, a, a combination of many things. Um, I'll give you an example. The lieutenant governor, 
Matt Michaels is such a talent and is so knowledgeable about our state retirement system. He was on the retirement laws committee when he was in the legislature. He took a particular interest in it. He's highly intelligent about this and things, concepts that are very complex when are described by an actuary or by an investment professional that would go over the head of someone who might be very intelligent, intelligent but not knowledgeable. Uh, he is able to understand because he is knowledgeable and intelligent. And so one of the things I'm going to recommend to the next governor is, as one of your appointees, choose him. <laughs> because he's been on the board now for as long as I've been governor, and he's very good. And he also helps the other members who come from all walks of life. You know, you've got people there that are high school teachers. You've got people there who are retired snowplow drivers. You've got people who represent the county officers or county officials. And again, uh, they're all intelligent, good people, but they might not know much about investments. They might not know what an actuary means when he means when he expresses a term that's complex and has a particular meaning in the pension world. And Matt, Matt's good at that. So that's just one example. And I'm, I'm making a list. And some of them are very concrete like that. You know, maybe to take a step down, what advice would you offer someone who is just thinking about getting into politics? Maybe they've never, you know, thought about it before. Politics is a is a hard, you know, endeavor. It's challenging. It challenges you in ways that you might, you know, not be able to expect when you kind of get into it. What advice would you offer someone who's thinking about throwing their hat in the ring? I would say uh, it's a great experience. Uh, the, probably the best benefit you get from it in terms of your personal selfishness is all the friendships you'll develop and all the people you meet because you meet great people from all over the state. And I'm talking now at the state level. And they, that could be true if you're in city government or county government. You'll meet people from all over the city and all over the county, whatever the case may be. And so that's a great advantage to involvement. And of course, you should feel good about serving the public. The one cautionary tale is it's you see among those people who serve, oftentimes they can get puffed up and they can start to worry more about getting attention for what they're doing than just doing. And when that starts to control a public servant, then they've lost sight of what they should be doing in a democracy. So uh, if people are self-aware and guard against that and recognize it for what it is, you know, you can, you can avoid it, but you have to be attentive to it because it happens to people. They, they come in for the right reasons, but they get excited when their name's in the paper and pretty soon they start to do things to get in the paper. And then that's, they're not serving anymore except themselves. You know, nationally, we talk about kind of this bitter partisanship that is a not totally applicable to how South Dakota operates its government. I mean, are you worried about our ability to cooperate and function as a democracy? Where do you where do you feel like we're at? Yeah, I, I am worried about that. Uh, I don't know what I, I think part of that is maybe uh, the nature of our federal government has changed with the ease and speed of transportation our representatives kind of parachute in and out and they don't develop relationships. Um, I was talking to somebody recently who explained how important it was for a group to eat together and meet together and be together so that when they do their work, they respect each other as individuals and are loath to personalize and overly criticize and vilify the others just because they think differently or believe differently. And I think if you spend time with people, it's hard for you to be uh, tough on them to their face. And um, I, I think we don't have that so much anymore because people are in and out so much in D.C. and don't, don't spend time together except in the doing of the work and not in getting to know each other and respecting each other as people. You know, campaigns get a bad rap. Did you enjoy campaigning? Uh, some of it. Uh, I would say 
uh, when I'm doing it, I, I like it generally. Uh, I like introducing myself to people. I like answering questions. I don't like it when people are, some of the pa parts of campaigning that were uh, dissatisfying and I didn't like were when questioners were absolutely confident about what I thought and also absolutely confident that what they thought was well-informed and right. And uh, so it's never fun to talk to someone like that. And yet there will be many people who will ask earnest questions, which are, which are not meant to be a form of debate, but really are interested in acquiring information. And if I have the information, or at least part of it, I can offer it. I like that kind of campaigning and interplay. Um, it's very grueling in terms of uh, the breadth of space the state spans. And so there would be more than one time when I know Linda and I would get home after midnight and we'd lay down and, and either she or I would say, is this worth it? And then the other would always say, we have to keep going. Just think about all the people who've invested in us, who've given us their money to, to be their candidate, and we can't quit. And so we didn't, of course. And then... And then Winning made it worth it, I guess. <laughs> well, I don't have a lot of experience with that. I've worked on a few campaigns before, and I, I love them because you just get to travel. I love the ability to go out there and meet different people. You really see, I think, the different sides of South Dakota, how these little towns all kind of have their own unique identity, whether it's the you know type of church steeple that they have you know, that says something about their community. Obviously, you always think of like the, the classic campaign war stories. I remember chasing a horse into a pasture with Ben Nesselhoff, going to like a parade in Lake Ann one time. Oh, yeah. um, I worked on Paula Hawk's congressional campaign. We almost ran out of gas near Midland, South Dakota, <laughs> which I was like mortified about. They actually didn't even tell me we were about to run out of gas. I was the comms person. So I was like going to basically yell at them for running out of gas West River, which I thought was the <laughs> ultimate faux pas yes. that you could make. Um, do you have like a good campaign war story where something went awry or, or something like that? Uh, not where we... Well, I, I can I can think of there's there's good stories of things that that happened to us, not where they went awry so much. Uh, I can remember being in Millbank and there was a horrendous snowstorm, and so we were planning to go on to I think Britain, and we just couldn't get out of town, and we were even reconsidering whether to have our evening event to which the public is invited. Now let's go through with it. We're here. And hardly anybody came because it was in the middle of a snowstorm. It had been snowing all day. And you know, we went through the motions. But some of the, a couple that came, there was a dentist and uh, his wife that came, and they were very nice. And it turns out the head of the Chamber of Commerce was their daughter, and that's why they came, because <laughs> she was the kind of the MC, <laughs> And so they didn't want her to feel like nobody was there. Well, then Chris, my son... Uh, and I went to the Super 8 Motel and checked in. And then the next morning, the phone rang, and it was this couple said, hey, come on over for breakfast. We know you got stuck in town. So they invited us over for breakfast, and it was very nice of them. Uh, another time, I remember when we first started out, our very first event was in um, oh, the town south of uh, Mobridge, uh, Selby. It was in Selby. And then that night we were going to be in Mobridge. So again, our pattern was every night we'd always be advertising for a couple of weeks beforehand, come meet the candidate on such and such night at 7.30 for free soup and sandwich supper. And uh, nobody came. We had three <laughs> people there. And as it turns out, Mobridge was in the football playoffs that night. So everybody had left out. You know, I like to use that as the excuse. But... Uh, but, you know, it varied tremendously. We had like three people in Mobridge and then we had 80 in Spearfish. And, and so it would just be all over the board. Uh, so it was, a, it was a great experience to campaign, but it, it can be very grueling. You know, I know we're running out of time here, so I better get to some education questions while, while we have you. Okay. What do you think is the biggest challenge facing education today? I think that we are a little bit stuck in the way we've always taught people 
the modalities of, of teaching. It's still stuck in the, hey, come to the school classroom, sit down and listen to me lecture, and then take a written test. The modalities, we're still stuck in that, although distance learning is, is making encroachments there in the higher ed area, and I think that's good. Uh, but we're also stuck in our what we teach uh, curriculum. Uh, some of the things that we teach in high school really don't prepare students for real life, and uh, yet we're, we're all, the curriculum that high schools teach today are all geared toward college prep. And that's good for those that are going to go on to college and graduate from college, but the fact of the matter is if you start with 109th graders in South Dakota, and we've done this and done the studies, you start with the 109th graders in 2006, 80 to 90 of them graduate. Now it's more like 90 lately, so we're doing better there. Of those 90 today, about 70%, that would be 63 of them, go on to enter some kind of post-secondary. It might be tech school, two-year, or it might be a four-year degree. So that's 63 of them. And about 60% of them graduate within 150 percent of the time when they could graduate so within six years if it's a four-year degree within three years if it's a two-year degree so 60 percent of 63 is about 36 or 7 of them so out of that 100 ninth graders there's only 37 of them that are completing a post-secondary degree path and so we need to recognize that we're failing two-thirds of them and we need to figure out better opportunities for them and more opportunities for them, whether it's apprenticeships or uh, the military or it's a career training in high school that gets them in a ticket to a field that has opportunity to grow into a, a living wage. But right now, that, that's a problem in education today. You know, your administration has really emphasized STEM education, I think, and technical education. Obviously, I think some in the liberal arts at, at times have gotten defensive maybe a little bit. What would you say to the critic that, you know, says that more emphasis should be placed on liberal arts education, that many of the challenges we have with emerging technology, um, privacy, for example, you know, are in and of themselves philosophical questions, and we still need that liberal arts backing to kind of answer some of these questions? I think it's good to have a liberal arts degree, but I think we also have to remember that at the end of the day, a person has to be able to earn a living wage. And the fact of the matter is, again, most of the kids that start college don't finish, or I should say only 60% of them finish. And a fair number of them will be liberal arts uh, degree holders. And of those degree holders, uh, a large number of them will take jobs that they could have gotten right out of high school because the degree they have don't, doesn't prepare them for the job they can get. And oftentimes they're stuck in jobs that are very poor. Now, some of the very competent, if you take someone that's a high achiever and they get a liberal arts degree, it doesn't matter what degree they've got because they've got high numeracy skills, they've got great literacy skills, they're good at interpersonal communication. Whatever field they enter, they'll progress and excel and they'll do well. They'll get it. They'll work their way up the career ladder, whatever career they choose. But for the average performer, or maybe less than average performer, you get a liberal arts degree. That gets them nothing because they're not going to compete well with the, with others in in the job hunt, and they're going to get stuck doing jobs that don't require a degree at all. You know, what are the next emerging industries in South Dakota? I know that we've placed a huge emphasis on the University Center in, in Sioux Falls and its relationship with biotechnology, some of these emerging fields that, you know, might be able to be attracted to the Sioux Falls area. You know, as governor, what do you see as sort of the next industries that might come to Sioux Falls and you know make it home? Well, right now, for people that are thinking about what their career choice should be, healthcare is huge. Uh, by far, nursing is uh outstripping demand for any other occupation by multiples. So we have Sanford, we have Avira, we have Rapid City Regional, we have virtually every nursing home in South Dakota. Uh, you look at our correction systems, everybody is having trouble hiring nurses because there just aren't enough of them. 
I, I'm told that if you go online to our job website, the state jobs website, there are 800 open nursing jobs in South Dakota. In South Dakota, we're a small population state, 800. So that's, that's substantial. And uh, so that's, that's one area where people, if you talk about uh, where are industries changing and emerging, I think biotechnology is something we've been very deliberate about targeting in our state. And I think we're going to see some successes even within the next few weeks, some announcements. And so I'm excited about that. And I think that is an area where you can combine uh, an interest in some of the health sciences and some of the biology sciences with very well-paying jobs that uh, create great value for the consumers and for our society. You know, when we talk about job hunts, you're going to be you know, shortly on, on a hunt <laughs> on for hunt, a new yeah. job yourself. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Have you thought about that yet? Have, have you, is it, you're still just kind of in it? Have you, have you gotten to the point where you've, you've begun to think about what life might be like? A little um, bit. Uh, I'll turn 65 here next month. Uh, Linda will turn 65 also this year. So um, we're looking at, we'll go on Medicare when I'm <laughs> off the state dole uh, at the end of this year. Uh, and then I'd like to say that we're financially independent and we can just retire, but that's not true. <laughs> we, we, uh, are, we still have our house on the farm in Del Rapids. We're going to move back there and it's paid for. And we're, if you, we could live there very frugally on retirement because we've been very careful about saving for retirement our whole lives and with social security and, and, uh, with our house paid for and everything, we'll, we could, but uh, I, I don't want to live like a hermit. You know, I'd like to travel a little bit, maybe go south for a month in the wintertime or something. And that, so I'll have to get a job of some kind. For the first six months, we're going to do nothing and, and just kind of see what strikes us or what opportunities might arise. Uh, a few people have approached me about some ideas in higher ed or in the nonprofit world or in the banking world. Uh, and so I haven't closed any doors, but I've, I've also said to every one of them, Hey, I just want to take a breather for six months and say no to a <laughs> nonprofit volunteer and paid roles for a little while. Are you, are you excited to be out of the public glare? I mean, that's part of politics. People, you know, and I guess people are going to recognize you probably for the rest of your life. They're oh, going to no. come up to you, right? For a little while. They will. <laughs> but a little it, while. It, I mean, how much of that? figures into a political life when you are such a, a public figure and you're so accessible. I mean, was that something that was easy for you or did you find it difficult? Oh, it, it's a mixed bag. It, in some ways it's flattering and kind of fun to be recognized. You know, gosh, I'm makes you feel a little bit special uh, that people recognize you. And, and most people are very, uh, very nice and complimentary. Oh, you're doing a good job as governor or something. And so that's, that's a good feeling. And and I have to admit that. At the same time, if I go to a restaurant with Linda or with one of the kids, I'd like to just sit down and have a meal with them and and not not worry about keeping my head down so I don't make eye contact with anyone. They'll wave and come over and talk, which is fine. I don't begrudge them that. And uh, that's part of my job to be governor all the time, all day, every day. But but yeah, it'll be it'll be good to be out of the fishbowl a little bit. I'm sure there'll, part, there'll be parts I miss and there'll be parts I, I don't miss. You know, the last question we like to ask most of our guests is an Oprah question. So it's a little bit reflective, but you've had a distinguished career. You've you know, been involved in law, um, bus driving in, in Chicago, um, you know, the nonprofit world, politics. At this point in your life, what do you know for sure? I know for sure I've had just a great life. I had uh, great parents and a great family. Uh, my two sisters are still very close to me, and uh, Lynn and I have had a great life together. We've been married now 37 years and got three kids and five grandkids, and I know for sure I am uh, I'm a very, very lucky, very lucky man. Uh, Governor Dugard, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for your service to the state. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grade, so we hope you enjoyed the episode. 
Next week, we interview Marty Barron, executive editor of The Washington Post, who was on campus earlier this year to accept the Al Newharth Award for Excellence in the Media. Barron is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist whose fame grew after the movie Spotlight brought awareness to his role uncovering the sexual abuse scandal in the Boston Catholic Church. Until next time, go Yotes.